In United States history, the motion of settlers has typically been westward. The title of a classic textbook on the history of the American frontier is therefore Westward Expansion. But to the Spanish settlers who moved into what is now the United States, the frontier moved a different direction. As they saw it, they were participating in northward expansion. This is Author and Finisher with Daniel Fisher. Episode 2, Northward Expansion, The Spanish Empire in North America. The Spanish sought to achieve three goals through northward expansion. They hoped to convert the Indians to Christianity, gain wealth, and ensure that no European competitor dominated the New World. To achieve these aims, Spain established Florida, Texas, New Mexico, and California beginning in the late 16th century. Making successes of these colonies required the Spanish to figure out ways to make them profitable. They also had to overcome the economic, military, diplomatic, and cultural challenges to dominating, or at least finding security from, numerous Indian tribes as well as European rivals England, France, and even Russia. The Spanish managed to overcome enough of these challenges to create a North American empire that lasted for centuries. But fatal flaws in their empire and the emergence of new threats eventually allowed a vast band of land that once spanned the continent to slip from Spain's grasp. The Spanish first swallowed up the area far below North America. In the 16th century, in the decades after Christopher Columbus's discovery of the New World, they conquered many of the Caribbean islands and much of Central and South America, including the Aztecs of what is now Mexico in 1521. New Spain comprised Spain's conquest from Central America northward. By 1550, the Spanish Empire included 7 million Spaniards and 20 million indigenous people in the New World. Meanwhile, Spain's first ventures into North America revealed that it could be a hard land. In 1513, Ponce de Leon, one of Columbus's sailors, explored what is now Florida. His expedition brought the first Europeans to North America since the Vikings. In 1521, he planted a settlement in Florida. But then he died in battle with Indians and the settlement withered. In fall 1526, other Spanish tried to settle on the coast of what is now South Carolina, but disease and the onset of cold weather soon snuffed out that dream. In 1528, Panfilo de Narvaez embarked from Cuba with 400 men to conquer the Gulf Coast. 300 traveled over land, while 100 stayed on the ships. The two parties arranged to meet at a rendezvous point, but they missed each other. The ships headed back to New Spain without the land party. Disease and battles with Indians depleted the survivors. Desperate to get home, they made their own ships and sailed along the Gulf Coast. In November 1528, two ships landed near where Galveston, Texas is today. By then, Narvaez was dead. The Karankawa Indians enslaved his men on the improvised vessels, including Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, Narvaez's second-in-command. Over the next six years, the slaves disappeared and died. But de Vaca survived and won some freedom for himself by working as a merchant and providing medical care. He eventually located three survivors of the expedition. One was Estevanico, a black slave. By then, Spain had begun to use enslaved Africans for labor in its colonies. In 1534, they made a break for it. 
They survived by working as healers, which made them popular with Indians as they traveled across Texas and northern Mexico. By the time they found fellow Spaniards, 600 Indians trailed along with them. Devaca reported that he had heard from Indians that there were cities full of wealth off to the north, inspiring further Spanish exploration in the southwest. In 1539, Estevanico guided an expedition of Indians under Friar Marcos de Niza into what is now New Mexico. Leading part of the expedition, Estevanico and most of his companions were killed by Pueblo Indians in the town of Hawaka. Traveling behind him, de Niza caught a glimpse of the town. He lived to return to Mexico, where he falsely claimed that he had seen one of the seven cities of Antilia, where there was said to be great treasure. Inspired by the report, the Viceroy of New Spain allowed Francisco Vasquez de Coronado y Lujan to launch a new expedition. In 1540, Coronado moved north from Mexico in command of about 1,300 men, including soldiers, Indians, and friars of the Franciscan religious order. They survived that winter in New Mexico by requisitioning food, clothing, and firewood from the Pueblo Indians and taking one of their villages. They tortured one of them into admitting the location of treasure. He said it was off to the east at a place called Quivira. An Indian from another tribe whom the Spanish encountered among the Pueblos and nicknamed El Turco confirmed the story. In 1541, they ventured into the Great Plains. One of the explorers observed that what is now the Texas Panhandle was land as level as the sea. Members of the expedition found the trackless plains so disorienting that some had trouble finding their way back if they ventured barely a mile from the group. Coronado's expedition eventually made it all the way to Quivira in central Kansas. But El Turco had been lying. He made up the story at the behest of Pueblos who hoped that the Spanish and their horses would find so little food on the plains that many would die. The Spanish found no riches and after another winter in New Mexico, returned home in 1542. In 1581, four people, including three Franciscans, visited New Mexico to bring Christianity to the Indians. They were the first to give the lands north of Mexico the name New Mexico. Indians killed the Franciscans, and the fourth member of the party died too. Meanwhile, also inspired by Devaca, Hernando de Soto landed in Florida in 1539 with 513 soldiers, plus Africans, Indians, and other Europeans. His company planned to plunder the Indians, find gold and silver, and found a colony. They passed through Georgia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama, crossed the Mississippi River, and entered Arkansas and Texas. During the course of their wanderings, some of their pigs escaped and went wild, thereby founding the species that Anglo-Americans would later call Razorbacks. DeSoto's men helped themselves to Indian wealth, but achieved none of their other goals. DeSoto died of disease near the Mississippi River in 1542. So did more than half of his men, many of them in a 1540 battle with Indians in Alabama. The depleted party sailed away in 1543. In 1559, Spanish officials tried to found two colonies, one on the Gulf Coast and another in what is now South Carolina. But a hurricane destroyed most of their ships shortly after landing in what is now western Florida, resulting in food shortages. Many Indians refused to help them because DeSoto's expedition had shattered their trust in Europeans. Making matters worse, disease assailed the expedition. 
And when the expedition pivoted to founding a colony in what is now southeast South Carolina, a hurricane struck the ships bearing the first settlers, sinking two of them and making it impossible for the rest to reach their destination. Soon after that, the Spanish evacuated the original colony. But the Spanish and other European powers did have plenty of advantages that could help them turn things around in North America. The virulent new diseases they brought weakened the Indians for future confrontations. European political systems were more suited for amassing power. Indians were fragmented into small bands. Europeans, on the other hand, had recently organized themselves into states, large political systems with a bureaucracy and army. These armies possessed weapons Indians could not match, firearms and weapons of steel, pikes, swords, and armor. Europeans had a wider range of domesticated livestock. Their horses allowed them to range farther and faster and frightened the Indians in battle. Their pigs and cattle gave them self-propelled meat and more abundant protein and leather. The Spanish were also empowered by Christianity, the religion practiced by most Europeans. In the same year that Columbus headed for America, Spain finished evicting Jews and Muslims by force. The experience honed Spain's war-making power and fueled its desire to bring foreign people under Christian control. The religious motive for Spain's conquest increased the confidence of its warriors by leading them to believe that God was on their side. After decades of fruitless forays into the region, in the mid-16th century, the Spanish at last established a lasting presence in North America. A colony in Florida appealed to the Spanish for several reasons. Westerly winds and currents led past Florida's east coast, making it the standard way home for Spanish ships. In the 1550s, Spain's relationship with France was deteriorating. French captains began striking Spanish shipping more often, reducing Spanish silver imports more than 50%. A base in Florida could protect ships in this vital sea lane, house shipwrecked crews, and salvage their cargoes. And a claim in the area would block the French. To meet these objectives, in 1565, King Philip II made Pedro Menendez Florida's adelantado, meaning he received the right to settle and profit from the colony and soldiers to help. Before the year was out, Menendez crossed the Atlantic with more than a thousand soldiers and settlers and founded St. Augustine, the first permanent European settlement in what is now the United States. Early Florida was no tropical paradise. There were no precious metals. Settlers were unable to force masses of Indians into serving as a cheap labor force. In defiance of orders, soldiers often plundered Indians, and Indians often hit back at the settlements. Savvy Spaniards looking to make a new start in America knew they could do better in the mining districts of Central and South America. Florida's population failed to grow. Only hoodlums and the mischievous go there, quipped the governor of Cuba in 1673. Indeed, one way Spain bolstered Florida's population was sending convicts there. Menendez died in 1574 without making a profit on his colony. The colony then passed into the hands of the Spanish crown. As they expanded around the world between the 15th and early 20th centuries, Europeans asserted power in various ways. The Spanish approach was to try to rule over the natives. The Spanish saw themselves as gente de raison, people of reason, and the Indians as gente sin raison, people without reason. They were much more willing to live among the Indians than were the English. 
In North America, the Franciscans, a Catholic order founded in 1209, carried out most of this project, subsidized by Spain with supplies ranging from candles to cinnamon. Spain used Franciscans to carry out much of his, its administration because the nation was under a papal mandate to spread the gospel. Franciscans were cheaper than soldiers, and the Spanish hoped Francis, Franciscan ability to acculturate the Indians might turn them into taxpayers. Franciscans dressed like peasants and agreed to live without sexual intercourse or private property. Some were priests, while others were laypeople. The friars displayed a combination of moral failure and good intentions. Many could not live up to the demands of the order and engaged in sexual relationships with Indian women. Some were vicious, demonstrated by evil deeds such as sexual abuse. The majority of them were trying to serve God as well as they could, even if it did not seem that way to Indians. Franciscans were zealous. By nature, their work brought loneliness and poverty, and some friars made things even harder on themselves by flogging themselves and wearing hair shirts, hoping to increase their chances of salvation. Some even courted martyrdom. In 1573, they began working in the area of the present-day state of Florida. Soon they expanded into what is now Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama. All of this was Florida to the Spanish. Throughout Florida, the Franciscans founded missions, sites that included housing for the Franciscans and a church. Franciscans taught Indians the faith and culture of European Christians. The Franciscans believed that converting the Indians to Christianity was giving them the most important thing there was, eternal salvation. They believed that conversion took place if Indians received a brief introduction to Christian doctrine and then had water applied to them in the sacrament of baptism. They also taught Indians a catechism consisting of questions and responses about the Christian faith, the words to hymns and traditional scripted prayers, and the right way to help with serving the bread and wine of the Eucharist during Mass. And they tried to put an end to polygamy. Franciscans not only sought to convert Indians, but also encouraged them to take up the culture of Europeans, which they saw as a critical part of turning to Christianity. They tried to get them to wear shoes and clothes that covered the whole body, eat bread, wine, and oil, grow wheat and other Spanish crops, raise Spanish domesticated livestock, and do Spanish crafts such as blacksmithing, leatherworking, and carpentry. They even taught some boys and girls and men and women to read and write. Franciscans were able to exercise significant influence over Indians. At the Franciscans' behest, Indians built them structures such as churches and housing. Many Indians changed their culture. Masses of Indians accepted baptism, though it is likely that a far smaller number became serious Christians. Some Indians converted because they saw value in going along. The Spanish offered access to new types of crops and livestock. The new plants that the Spanish brought over were so popular that once Indians got a hold of them, they spread by trade among Indians ahead of European settlement. Supplied this way, by the time Europeans got to them, Indians in Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia were already growing peaches, and pueblos in New Mexico were growing watermelons. The Spanish also gave or traded to Indians valuable manufactured goods, such as metal axes and glass beads. Many Indians wanted access to, or protection from, the spiritual power the friars seemed to have. After all, they survived diseases that were devastating the Indians and could control unfamiliar domestic animals. The Pueblos were impressed at the priest's sexual forbearance. 
Believing that even a few days of abstinence built up one's spiritual power, they reeled at what lifetime celibacy must be achieving. Submitting to the Franciscans also meant access to Spanish protection from other Indians. Franciscans were also skillful at exercising influence. They taught effectively. They awed Indians with Catholicism's feast for the senses. Beautiful objects such as sumptuous vestments, gleaming silver cups holding communion wine, and images of the Virgin Mary, and imposing activities such as ritual, singing, and the playing of trumpets in the organ. They converted leaders and replaced those who resisted. They also tried to win over children, believing they were easier to convert and would prove effective proselytizers. And the Franciscans used raw power. They tried to shut down Indian religion by destroying or confiscating sacred objects and suppressing religious rituals. The Spanish government applied pressure. Often, though not always, the Franciscans enjoyed military backup. Soldiers did not force Indians into conversions, but they did protect the Franciscans and help the Franciscans to control Indians who had joined the faith by undergoing baptism. Soldiers, Franciscans, and Indians working as agents of the Franciscans forced Indians to stay on missions and abide by Christian morality by various means, including stocks and even flogging. But many Indians were put off by the Franciscans' demands or doubted the power of the Christian God when things were going wrong. In response, they often joined their old culture with the culture imported by the Franciscans. They used Spanish farm or construction tools with traditional methods, or consulted both the Franciscans and traditional shamans. They also sometimes resisted the Franciscans. On one occasion, for example, Indians served a priest a tortilla stuffed with mouse meat drizzled in urine. Spaniards who were not Franciscans also interfered in the lives of Indians by deriving labor from them. Government officials forced Indians to carry out public works projects. Indians built Santa Fe, New Mexico, for example. Spanish law allowed the use of forced Indian labor for public works, but mandated that Indians be paid a minimum wage and limited the types of work Indians could be required to do. This type of labor requisition was especially burdensome because the Spanish often broke those rules. Officials often forced Indians to work for substandard wages or without pay, or forced them to do jobs other than public works, such as carrying loads. Officials also often used labor that was supposed to be devoted to public works for their own profit. Another means of accessing Indian labor was acquiring Indians that the Spanish refer to as servants. Spanish gained servants by offering care to orphaned Indians or to Indians who had been captured by an enemy band of Indians, then ransomed with public or private Spanish funds. Servanthood had limits. Parents did not pass on their condition to their children, and the status was not necessarily permanent. Still, Indians in this position were subject to at least temporary forced labor and often mistreated. Some women endured sexual assault, for example. Some Spanish also enslaved Indians. In the late 16th century, Spain banned Indian enslavement, but the Spanish often broke the law. And in some cases, authorities allowed the enslavement of enemy Indians on the grounds that they were in league with the devil. The Spanish acquired Indian slaves various ways. The Spanish purchased slaves from Indians, who were familiar with this form of labor because they practiced it before the Spanish arrived. 
and the Spanish acquired slaves through raids they, or Indians working on their behalf, conducted, and by capturing those who attacked Spanish settlements. The Spanish typically held their Indian slaves for ten years, then set them free. And the Spanish enslaved Africans, mainly in their southeastern colonies. Although African slavery was for life, many slaves went free in Florida's early decades. But then, in the late 18th century, Spain lost control of Florida to the British for two decades. During that time, plantation owners surged into Florida, increasing the black population and the level of restrictions on Africans. By 1783, the African population of East Florida, site of the modern state of Florida, was 10,000, larger than the white population. Wealth, labor, and race structured the social hierarchy of the Spanish colonies. The Spanish favored people with light skin. Slaves of any race were at the bottom of the racial hierarchy. Just above them was a category containing free blacks, Indians living freely among the Spanish, and mulattoes, the offspring of Spanish-African unions. Next were mestizos, the offspring of Indian-Spanish unions. At the top were Spaniards, Espanols. The lower part of this group was Criollos, Espanols born in America. The top group was Peninsulares, Espanols born in Spain. Spanish law favored the Espanols. It protected them from being punished by flogging, and it sometimes separated the races in various ways. Some parishes set aside books used in worship for only the Espanols. In some places, the Espanols lived apart as well. The social ladder was climbable, and scaling it could alter one's racial classification. People who reached the top were racially defined as Espanols. Because Spanish North America was the frontier of its empire, race was far less likely to permanently fix one's status than in places closer to the center of the empire. Many people redefined themselves as members of a race with higher status than their true heritage. Many mestizos said they were Espanols, for example. Priests and officials often did not interfere with such claims. Authorities also often eliminated steps in the social hierarchy by defining everyone as either an Espanol or not. It was also easier to gain status by becoming wealthier or changing jobs on the frontier than elsewhere. More moved up through military service than any other way. In Texas, all soldiers were defined as Espanol, no matter their heritage. Soldiers earned more than many other jobs, if one accumulates the value of the plunder, pensions, pay, and care they received from the military. High authorities were too far away to enforce custom, and the seriousness of the mission eroded stratification. Shared danger encouraged equality, and officers were practical enough to consider skill as a soldier more than race when granting promotions. By 1675, Spanish power in Florida was at its peak. The Spanish did not know it, but they had founded their maximum number of missions. At these sites, 40 priests oversaw 20,000 Indians. Then came decades of decline. Some of the downfall came from within. Angered by forced labor and constraints on their religion, Indians launched more destructive rebellions. But conflict with another European power did the most to weaken Florida. In 1670, the English founded the colony of Carolina, just off to the north. For much of the following decades, England and Spain were at war. During these wars, the English tried to dominate access to the ocean and to trade with Indians. 
They got help from Indian allies, including the Creeks and Yamases, by offering them gifts and trade. Sometimes aided by Indians living on the Spanish missions, the English and their allies destroyed most of the missions, enslaving many of the Indians they encountered. By 1706, the constellation of missions in Florida was gone. Few Indians lived under Spanish rule after that. But shrunken Florida survived. One way was turning Africans into a bulwark for Florida's defenses. Before 1763, no colony in North America offered Africans more liberty than Florida. Spanish authorities tried to entice slaves to flee the Carolinas by freeing runaways from there. They tried to win the loyalty of slaves already living in the colony by allowing them to earn income in their spare time and to marry. And they tried to build up their armed forces by enlisting blacks as soldiers. Largely because of Spanish policies, many slaves fled to Florida, allowing it to develop a large black population that lived away from Europeans. Some lived in free black communities. Others voluntarily lived among the Indians. And others ended up enslaved by Indians. Colonial Florida was never economically successful. Spain always spent more on keeping it alive than it made in return from tax revenues. It failed to develop strong sectors of the economy apart from serving the military, which provided too little demand to ignite rip-roaring trade. Lack of Indian labor and frequent Indian attacks helped to keep the economy weak. The Spanish who did come were mostly able to carry over traditional housing styles, but the structures were more austere than the ones back home. They were made of either shell stone or a slurry made of lime, sand, and pulverized shells. To beat the heat, they featured balconies and other open structures jutting out, and windows were covered only by grates. Hundreds of miles to the west, Coronado's journey did prove consequential, for in time, the information he provided about the Pueblo Indians enticed settlers to exploit them. Don Juan de Oñate believed there was money to be made in New Mexico, so he made a deal with the viceroy of New Spain, similar to the one Menendez had made over Florida. If Oñate would find colonists and pay the costs of establishing them, he would get to be governor and reap the profits from the colony. Oñate enticed settlers by offering them land, a noble title, and the right to requisition goods from the Pueblos. To get the benefits, they had to stay at least five years. In 1598, he led several hundred settlers and ten Franciscans north and founded New Mexico. Oñate found it harder than he had thought to make big money in New Mexico. Once his settlers arrived, they hated it. Most did not find the reward worth five years of their lives. New Mexico was economically barren. There were no rich stores of gold and silver, and the settlers even struggled to produce enough food because of the scant rainfall. The weather featured extremes of heat and cold. The place was infested by bugs. Their children were miserable. In 1601, more than 400 settlers left. Oñate and a team of explorers did, however, go on an exploring expedition in which Indians told them bizarre stories about people farther on. Some, they said, survived by smelling because their bodies lacked the ability to defecate. Others had ears that reached from the head to the ground. And there were men with such long sexual organs that they could wrap them around their bodies and still have intercourse with distant women. 
In response to receiving these ridiculous tales on top of the news of such little progress, New Spain's viceroy wrote to King Philip III, This conquest is becoming a fairy tale. The king also learned that colonists were mistreating the Indians. In one particularly egregious instance, on the verge of their first winter in New Mexico, the Spanish committed numerous rapes and forced the Pueblos to give them corn, beans, squash, blankets, and firewood that they had stored for themselves. The villagers of Acoma killed 13 Spaniards in self-defense. In response, in January 1599, the Spanish burned the town and captured almost 600 people. The Spanish sentenced men aged 25 and up to have a foot cut off, though they may have granted clemency to win loyalty. But everyone aged 12 and up was certainly sentenced to 20 years of slavery. Children under 12 were to be Spanish servants. Displeased by the reports, Philip ordered the misbegotten place abandoned and charged Oñate with mismanagement. A court in Mexico City found Oñate guilty of injustice toward both the settlers and the Indians, plus adultery, and banished him from his own colony. But, unlike Oñate, New Mexico received a reprieve. In 1608, Philip received a report that 7,000 pueblos had been baptized and another 7,000 sought baptism. These numbers were exaggerations, but to protect what he thought was a thriving addition to Christendom and to maintain Spanish control in the region, he took direct control of the colony, which meant Spain would have to pump even more money into it to keep it afloat. In 1610, the colony's new royally appointed governor founded Santa Fe to be the new capital, making it the second oldest European city in North America. Still, despite the Spanish government's intervention, New Mexico remained unappealing to settlers. By 1640, the English had placed a hundred times more colonists in Massachusetts and Virginia than the Spanish had in New Mexico. The situation did not improve. During the 17th century, the colony probably never had more than 3,000 settlers. Spain invested 90 times more money on holding New Mexico than it made in revenue from it. Dominating the Pueblos went better for a while. The Spanish struggled to make it in New Mexico, but the Pueblos had come up with a way of life that worked. They organized themselves into 130 villages of 400 to 2,000 people. Like the tribe, these villages were called Pueblos. Pueblo Indians lived in spectacular structures. Their builders fashioned them of stone and adobe and were able to raise them several stories into the air. Occupants entered the roof through ladders. The Pueblos believed the physical world represented embodied spirits. These spirits provided rain, good harvests, health, and children. Pueblos served them by dancing in kachina masks, which depicted various spirits, or using sacred items, including prayer sticks, cornmeal, and images of animals. Unfortunately for them, their religious beliefs did not carry any connotations that made them more fearsome in battle. The Spanish were largely able to break the Pueblos to their will. The Pueblos' divisions made them easy pickings. Although they shared a culture, the lines that broke them into villages were sharply drawn. Villages were independent. They fought for water, wood, and farmland. None spoke languages that any of their neighbors could understand. Forced labor was one way the Spanish dominated. New Mexico settlers wanted a means of income. 
Furthermore, the colony lacked a contingent of professional soldiers for most of the 17th century, so it needed a means of motivating men to fight. Authorities therefore gave out privileges called encomiendas. Those who held encomiendas were called encomenderos. Encomenderos received the right to rule certain pueblos. They could demand limited amounts of maize, cotton cloth, skins, salt, or pinion nuts from them. In exchange, they were supposed to look after the pueblos by paying them, providing protection, and seeing that they were instructed in the Christian faith. Often, encomenderos did not come through on their obligations. Making the exploitation worse, they often exceeded the power they had been granted by requiring Indians to provide manual labor or domestic service. The Franciscans also rearranged the lives of the pueblos, but many of the pueblos' old ways survived. A major reason for this was that the friars' tactic for reaching the pueblos was to live among them. Though invasive, this tactic was less effective than moving the pueblos to missions and rebuilding their lives from scratch. Pueblos had to help with building churches, observe religious festivals, attend church, and do farm work for the friars. In the 17th century, the Franciscans' lands produced the majority of the maize and sheep raised under the management of Spanish colonists. The Franciscans tried to stamp out the Pueblo's religion by acts such as purging their kachina masks. Under Franciscan influence, Pueblos began to live by the church calendar and decorated their homes with Christian icons. Nevertheless, the majority of the Pueblos changed their lives only in the limited sense of mixing Christianity into their old faith rather than making radical conversions. They made the God of the Bible part of their pantheon of gods. They used traditional dancing on Christian feast days. The Pueblos benefited from the Spanish presence in some ways. The Spanish offered protection, and their metal tools and new crops, such as wheat, provided larger harvests. Still, the Pueblos on the whole preferred to be rid of the Spanish. In the 1660s and 1670s, they suffered a drought. Many explained it as the spirit's punishment for turning to the Spanish god. Spanish protection was often ineffective. Neighboring Indians attacked the Pueblos more often after the Spanish came. The Spanish banned the Pueblos from trading, so neighboring tribes started to get what they wanted by force. The drought likely increased their hunger for Pueblo goods. The goods the Spanish introduced made the Pueblos more tempting targets, and neighboring tribes' raids allowed them to take horses and metal weapons introduced by the Spanish, making them more dangerous in the future. The Pueblos got poorer after the Spanish came, and their population declined from epidemic disease. When the Spanish arrived, it was 16,000. By 1680, it was down to 20,000. In the 60s, 60s and 1670s, Seeing their misfortune as a sign of the ineffectiveness of the Christian God, they began to openly practice their old religion again. The Spanish tried to snuff out this restoration movement, even flogging and hanging Pueblo religious leaders. But the denial of religious liberty only increased Pueblo unrest. Pueblo ability to resist the Spanish grew along with their discontentment. An unintended consequence of the Spanish presence was increasing unity between the Pueblo villages. Much of the language barrier came down because the Franciscans taught Spanish to many of the Pueblos, providing a common second language. And they began to see themselves as one people because they shared a dislike of Spanish rule. Another source of Pueblo power was numbers. 
because few settlers found New Mexico appealing, the Pueblos had a larger population than the Spanish. And by 1680, the Pueblos had a leader, Pope. He, along with dozens of other Pueblo medicine men, were charged with sorcery and imprisoned in 1675. In captivity, Pope had been whipped. Now he wanted not only liberty for his people, but revenge. Pope rallied the Pueblos to drive out the Spanish, arguing that it was the will of their gods. To coordinate the uprising, supporters distributed ropes tied into knots to the Pueblo villages. Each knot represented one day until the date the revolt would begin, August 11, 1680. Chiefs were to count down the days by untying one knot per day. The Spanish saw storm clouds forming. Some Pueblos warned them about what was coming. This made the Spanish more vigilant, and they captured two Pueblos who disclosed the date of the uprising. But the Pueblos salvaged the operation by striking a day early. On August 10, 1680, the Pueblo Revolt began. Across the colony, Pueblos began desecrating Christian symbols and killing Spaniards. At one ranch, the Pueblos slaughtered a husband and wife, their six children, and four other people, and left their bodies stripped naked. Spanish rule soon collapsed. Within two weeks, the Pueblos took Santa Fe, where they burned the church and carried out burlesque performances of Christian rituals. Across the colony, the Pueblos slaughtered 21 of the 33 Franciscans and at least 380 of the 2,350 Spanish colonists. After the Pueblo Revolt, Pope and other Pueblo leaders tried to eliminate all traces of Spanish rule. They punished those who remained loyal to Spain or continued to practice Christianity and tried to make Catholicism invisible and contemptible. The Pueblos destroyed icons, including crosses and images of Jesus, Mary, and the saints. They also flattened churches, including the one at Picos, the largest Spanish building in the colony. They encouraged couples that had undergone Christian weddings to break up and remarry others if they chose. They told individuals who had received a new name at baptism to revert to their old names. They also pressed the Pueblos to return to their old culture in other ways. They told them to wear the cachinas again. And they said they should eliminate everything connected to the Spanish, including their horses, sheep, tools, and weapons. But under Pope's rule, the divisions emerged again. Many Pueblos shared Pope's desire to remove all traces of the Spanish, but others did not want to go so far. They wanted to hang on to parts of Spanish culture, or even restore Spanish rule altogether. Some of these people had intermarried with the Spanish and wanted to hold their families together. Others wanted trade with the Spanish, or the safety that Spanish troops had provided. The departure of the Spanish allowed raiding Navajos to do more damage to the Pueblos. While some parts of Spanish culture disappeared, the Pueblos showed their appreciation of other parts of Spanish culture by holding on to their crops, livestock, and methods of making wool textiles. In 1682, those who took a moderate view of Spanish culture overthrew Pope. In 1692... Spanish Governor Diego de Vargas launched a campaign to retake New Mexico. He took women and children as hostages, wrecked crops, killed captives, and gave out mercy, which was one reason many Pueblos joined his forces. Over the next two years, the Spanish regained their colony. Franciscans baptized children born since 1680. 
Back in power, the Spanish returned to their old policies, encomiendas and a purge of Pueblo religion. In 1696, the Pueblos responded with a sequel to the Pueblo Revolt. The Spanish soon crushed the rebels, but at this point the two sides realized neither could completely subdue the other. They would have to find a means of mutual accommodation. The Spanish began to allow the Pueblos to keep their old religion, with the stipulation that they get baptized and attend mass and feast day celebrations. The Spanish and Pueblos collaborated to defend themselves against the Apaches, Comanches, and Navajos. The Spanish king and the governor he appointed would rule, but each Pueblo could also be largely self-governing, and the encomiendas would cease. The Spanish replaced Pueblo labor with enslaved Indians from other tribes, often Apaches. With these reforms in place, New Mexico was more stable, but remained a backwater. There was silver there, but not enough to tempt many settlers. Little land could feasibly be irrigated, so it could not sustain many farmers. Food was sometimes short. Lacking an efficient supply artery, it mostly had to rely directly on its own crafts, farming, and sheep to meet its needs. Spanish sheep left a permanent mark on the landscape of New Mexico and other places in the southwest. Their massed hooves trampled the grass until it died. Once the grass died, runoff scored the ground with deep ruts called arroyos. Arroyos sped the runoff of rainwater, preventing it from soaking into the ground. As a result, the soil dried out, and many wooded areas and grasslands withered. Sheep's grazing and trampling also destroyed lush oases of trees and grass next to the streams. The animals did replace some of what they destroyed. They bore seeds of European grasses, such as Kentucky bluegrass, in their manure, or clinging to their hides, and thereby replanted many areas with European grasses that could survive close grazing. In addition to their agricultural pursuits, New Mexicans traded guns, ammunition, produce, and horses to neighboring Indians for hides of buffalo and other animals, meat, and Indian slaves. And they kept up a fairly profitable trade with New Mexico, to which they sent sheep, wool products, pine nuts, pottery, and goods acquired in trade with Indians. By 1765, New Mexico had fewer than 10,000 settlers and barely 10,000 Christianized Indians. Like the Southeasterners, settlers who did come to New Mexico were able to transplant housing styles from home with fewer frills. Their homes were made from adobe or mud bricks. Homes often surrounded an unroofed courtyard, and openings were kept small to block cold air. Although few people were willing to come to New Mexico and make a fresh start, to Spanish authorities, the colony was worth keeping because it acted as a barrier against the expansion of other European powers and a base the Spanish could use to prevent French expansion into the Great Plains. Competition for power was also part of what inspired the Spanish to found the colony of Texas. In the late 17th and early 18th centuries, the French crowded a little too close to New Mexico for the comfort of Spanish officials. In the 1680s, the French explored the west coast of the Gulf of Mexico and founded a short-lived settlement in East Texas. Around the same time, they founded the new colony of Louisiana in the southern Mississippi River Valley. In 1699, they settled at Biloxi Bay in what is now Mississippi, and in 1702, they founded Mobile, Alabama. Spanish officials feared that the encroaching French might gobble up their colonies or win trade from New Mexico and New Spain that would otherwise have gone to Spain. They were also concerned because Texas was full of Indians unreached by Christianity. 
In the 1690s, the Spanish set to work alleviating these concerns by founding two missions in East Texas. They called it Tejas, because that was how the word for friends in Caddo, the local Indian language, sounded to them. These missions flopped. The Spanish abandoned one because of the hostility of the Indians, and a flood washed away the other. After a generation went by, Spain's interest in Texas picked back up. In 1714, Louis Juchero de Saint-Denis, a French trader, arrived at the Spanish mission of San Juan Bautista in what is now northern Mexico. He had come at the behest of Francisco Hidalgo, a Franciscan there, who had asked the French governor of Louisiana to promote missionary work among Indians in Texas. Hidalgo's odd action may have been motivated by goading Spanish officials into re-entering Texas. If that was his goal, it worked. Alarmed that Saint-Denis' coming indicated that the French might start to drain trade from or even invade New Spain, the Viceroy ordered renewed settlement of Texas. In 1716 and 1717, settlers, soldiers, Franciscans, and allied Indians founded six missions and a presidio, the Spanish term for a military base. In 1718, they founded San Antonio, featuring a town, presidio, and mission that was one day renamed the Alamo. In the 1740s, Don José de Escandón, Conde de Sierra Gorda, who had been granted land in South Texas, drew thousands of settlers there. He provided land and paid moving costs. Texas became a major cattle raising area. At first, the majority of cattle were raised on the missions, but by the end of the 1700s, they were mainly raised by individuals. Many of the ranch hands, called vaqueros, were Indians or mestizos. Ranchers used an approach with roots in the Caribbean and the lowlands of southwest Spain. Cattle received little attention. Vaqueros rode horses and controlled stock with lassos. Sporadically, once or twice a year, or even less than that, vaqueros rounded up the cattle to brand them with the owner's mark. Despite the cattle raiser's successes, Texas also did not catch on as a settler magnet. It lacked gold and silver. The Spanish were unable to mobilize a large Indian workforce. The Franciscans monopolized what Indian labor there was and, with Indians' help, undersold Texas settlers. Concerned about the fate of Indians and the threat of Europeans also spurred Spain to colonize California, which Spain saw as the whole Pacific coast region. By the mid-18th century, Spanish officials feared that California might be snatched by rivals. One was the British. Ignorant of geography, Spanish officials thought Britain's eastern North American colonies ranged close to the west coast, or that the British would find the Northwest Passage and be able to get to the Pacific by a water route spanning North America. Another threat was the Russians. By the 1740s, Russians, using Indian forced labor, were hunting sea otters and seals in Alaska and trading them to China. Spanish authorities also once again hoped to win Indian converts. In 1769, Spain sponsored expeditions to California by water and by land from Baja, California, the part of California that is today in northwest Mexico. Leading the way were two ships. Behind them came two land parties containing soldiers and Christianized Indians and accompanied by Franciscan friar Junipero Serra. By July 1769, they had all assembled at San Diego Bay. In the following months, a detachment ventured further north and discovered San Francisco Bay, an outstanding harbor. The Spanish set to work founding missions, presidios, and towns. 
By the early 19th century, Los Angeles was one of the largest Spanish towns in North America, with a population of 850. What people from the United States call the state of California, the Spanish called Alta California, meaning New California. California was tough to reach. The contrary winds and currents along the west coast slowed ships. In 1769, the sea voyage to California took so long that 50 of the 90 sailors who took part in founding Spain's colony there died of scurvy. The land route from Baja, California was little better. But then, in fall 1775, Captain Juan Bautista de Anza led 242 people from northern Mexico over a newly discovered land route to California. The party founded San Francisco in 1776. The expedition had found the easiest way to reach California, and those who followed it swelled California's population of cattle, horses, settlers, and soldiers. Hoping to benefit from Spanish goods and protection, Yuma Indians living along the way at the junction of the Colorado and Gila rivers invited the Spanish to settle among them. Hoping the Yumas could help with crossing the Colorado there, the Spanish founded a settlement in winter 1780 to 1781. The relationship soured fast. The Yumas overthrew the Spanish a few months after their arrival, closing the best route to California. The colony returned to being isolated, and immigration slowed. In California, the Spanish exerted far more control over the Indians than they had in New Mexico by forcing them to live on missions rather than merely intervening in their towns. They soon forced the majority of Indians south of San Francisco and west of the Sierra Nevada mountains to live on missions. The Franciscans who oversaw the missions believed they were blessing the Indians. The Indians apparently did not see things that way. The Franciscans had to be backed up by soldiers who made sure Indians stayed put. Indians sometimes resisted. In 1775, for example, they burned the mission at San Diego. But, on the whole, they were unable to resist the Spanish. They had neither guns nor horses and lacked centralization, including experience doing battle in large formations. Mission Indians who fled or misbehaved faced severe physical punishment, such as the stocks, chains, or flogging. On the missions, the Franciscans replaced the Indians' old diet. Out was wild game, acorns, berries, and wild grasses. In was maize, barley, beans, wheat, mutton, and beef. Indians had to work and needed permission to leave the missions to visit family, hunt, or gather wild plants. The missions succeeded, but the Indians languished. Over their first half century, the population and the output of the missions rose rapidly. By the 1780s, the missions produced a surplus, allowing them to trade the outputs of their fields, flocks, and herds for tools, textiles, and fine foods like brandy, chocolate, and fruit preserves. With enticing goods available on the missions, and with no other Europeans around to provide alternative sources for these goods, the number of Indians willing to live on the missions rose. Mission coffers swelled, founding the, funding the founding of even more missions. By 1803, California missions held 18,000 Indians and almost 80,000 cattle. Meanwhile, the Indian population collapsed. When the Spanish arrived, 300,000 Indians lived in California. No part of North America was more densely peopled by Indians. But at the mission's unsanitary conditions, cramped, poorly ventilated housing that encouraged the spread of disease, 
dietary changes, lack of medical care, and Franciscan regimentation all took a toll. So did high rates of syphilis that led to infertility. By 1821, the Indian population was down to 200,000. One reason the missions produced so much was that children and elderly people were dying at high rates, leaving people in their prime with few others to take care of. While the Spanish established a great deal of control over Indians within their borders, they struggled to advance their interests with tribes whose daily lives they did not control. In the 18th century, French and British traders did a far larger share of the fur trade. European fur traders offered Indians manufactured goods, such as knives, blankets, and scissors, for the hides of various animals, including deer, buffalo, and beaver. The French and British had more resources to invest in the fur trade because they had larger populations, more skill at manufacturing, and more capital to invest. Their government's policies also gave them an advantage. French and British traders were far more likely to give the Indians firearms and ammunition than the Spanish. This was partly because Spanish officials banned the weapons trade. In many cases, governors and merchants broke the rules, but they were still limited by Spain's smaller output of these goods. The French and British were also better at ingratiating themselves with Indians. Spanish attempts to change Indian culture annoyed the Indians. The strength of the British was having goods that were simultaneously least expensive and highest quality. Meanwhile, the French were best at befriending the Indians. They did not have much interest in Indian land, but were willing to speak Indian languages and marry into their tribes. Spanish weaknesses as traders had ramifications beyond balance sheets. Trade with the Indians unlocked power in North America. By the 1730s, Spain had few Indian friends in the southeast. Meanwhile, Franciscans struggled to win converts in Florida and Texas because trading with the English and French met Indians' earthly needs so well that they saw little need for Christianity. In Texas, only Indians in desperate trouble were willing to give up their freedom to live on missions. Meanwhile, Spanish impotence hemmed in New Mexico and Texas. Tribes north of the border, including the Utes, Wichitas, Pawnees, Navajos, Apaches, and Comanches, kept the Spanish from expanding further and frequently raided the Spanish, scaring away potential settlers. These tribes had become increasingly powerful through contact with the Europeans. They acquired horses that originated with the Spanish through raiding, trading, and capturing them wild. And the French, and even Spanish, traded them guns. In the 1760s, Spain acquired France's colony of Louisiana. Spain's authorities there began allowing the gun trade, continuing the French policy. This bought the friendship of tribes in Louisiana and Texas, but it also increased the number of guns in Indian hands and made them even more dangerous to Spain's western colonies. The Spanish had a network of presidios across the west, but they were too few to stave off the raiders. The raiders targeted the Spanish for several reasons. One was retaliation. The Spanish took Indian land, pestered them with missionaries, and acquired Indian slaves from various tribes, including the Apaches and Navajos, by capturing them or trading with other Indians for them. The Comanches wanted to force the Spanish to do more trading with them and to steal Spanish livestock. The Apaches began pilfering Spanish livestock more often in the early 18th century, 
Routed by the increasing firepower and mobility of the Wichitas and Comanches, they retreated south toward the Spanish. With their access to buffalo habitat declining, they needed other animals to take their place. The Spanish made tempting targets because of their combination of wealth and weakness. The Spanish could even get caught in the midst of intertribal politics. In 1758, Comanche raiders torched a Spanish mission in central Texas and killed eight people there. The mission had been requested by some of the Apaches, and the Comanches wanted to keep them and the Spanish far apart. In the 18th century, raiding did mounting levels of damage to Mexico, New Mexico, and Texas. Raiders drove large numbers of people from their homes, stole masses of livestock, reduced the quantity of supplies that could get through, and enslaved many women and children. In just one Mexican province between 1771 and 1776, Apache raiders killed 1,674 people and captured 154 humans and 68,256 livestock. By 1770, New Mexico had lost the majority of its horses to Indian raiders. In the late 18th century, Spain began to make serious reforms to its colonies under a series of capable leaders, including King Carlos III, who came to the throne in 1759 and tried to apply the Enlightenment value of reason to his empire. Spain's most significant reform was overturning how it conducted Indian affairs in the Southwest. A failed early reform was to rely even more heavily on force for security. But in the late 1770s, Spain instead turned to shrewd diplomacy. While it would use force against recalcitrant bands, it also adopted subtler tactics. It would make treaties with Indians more often, treating them as independent nations rather than Spanish subjects. It would exploit rivalries among and between tribes, such as the Comanche-Apache conflict. And, probably in imitation of French policies, it would also woo the Indians through trade and gift-giving and allow guns and ammunition to be traded and given to Indians. The Spanish started to dispense gifts to compete with the quality of French and British gifts, medals, canes with silver handles, and military uniforms. They also started to try to make sure that trade was fairer to the Indians. The Spanish hoped that their goods would create dependency among the tribes, who would then find themselves unable to make war on their benefactors. By 1785, Texas was giving gifts to 22 Indian bands. Spanish Viceroy Bernardo de Galvez hoped gun-carrying Indians would become dependent on Spanish ammunition and gunsmiths and forget how to use the bow and arrow, which he saw as more effective than guns, or at least the guns he distributed. In 1786, Galvez ordered the Spanish to distribute the worst firearms they had, so long as they were so long they were these firearms were so long they were unwieldy and they were fragile as well. The new policy began to pay off. Indians were enticed by greater access to Spanish goods. Feeling vulnerable, Comanche enmity for Spain wavered. An army of Spanish soldiers, New Mexico militia, and Indians had badly defeated them in Colorado in 1779. And the next year, smallpox took out a lot of them. They hoped that peace with Spain might help them conquer more Apache land on the southern plains, opening more trade and more buffalo hunting. In 1785 and 1786, Texas and then New Mexico made alliances with the Comanches. Later in 1786, 
the Navajos joined the alliance too. Soon the Utes and Hikarila Apaches came around. In the late 1780s and early 1790s, the Spanish and their Indian allies fought recalcitrant Apaches. It was a brutal struggle. The Spanish paid for Apache ears and sent many captives to Cuba. By the early 1790s, many of the Apache holdouts were ready for peace. They began living on land designated by the Spanish on the Spanish bankroll. There they received corn, meat, tobacco, alcohol, protection, and lessons in Spanish culture. Indians continued to raid Mexico, New Mexico, and Texas, but they struck far less often than before. The Spanish economy in the West reaped the benefits. Settlers found it easier to acquire land. Travel became safer, encouraging trade. Despite its reforms, though, Spain never did succeed at making any of its North American colonies appealing places for settlers. The forbidding desert, mountain, and grassland environment on their western colonies' borders helped to prevent any further expansion of the frontier. The colonies had little to offer those who wanted to make a better living. With little value to be had from its northern colonies, Spain invested little in them. In the 17th century, Spain's vast imports of precious metals from other parts of its empire caused inflation, driving up the price of Spanish manufactured goods and thereby shrinking demand for the raw materials the North American colonies could provide. Lack of a reliable travel route between its colonies prevented intercolonial trade. These colonies were far from sources of goods. Spain's mercantilist policies which were intended to concentrate wealth in the mother country and ensure no tax went uncollected, choked the colonies. Spain's trade regulations were far more intrusive than Britain's. Texas was forbidden to export goods outside or even inside the empire. New Mexican traders were allowed only to deal with a few traders in Mexico, crushing their bargaining power. These policies often prevented colonists from importing goods that did not come from Spanish merchants and manufacturers on Spanish ships. They also limited import points. All goods that went to New Mexico and Texas had to come through Veracruz, Mexico, resulting in long treks to get goods into these colonies and thereby driving up payments to middlemen, haulers, and tax collectors. It took six months to get supplies from Mexico to New Mexico and another six months to deliver them to outlying settlements, so supplies came only once every three years. Spain's ability to supply its colonies was so pitiful that by the 18th century they often had to rely on trade, much of it smuggled, with the French and English, Indians, or even pirates to get what they needed. The British far outdid the Spanish at filling North America with people. Florida's settler population was only 2,100 in 1745. By 1800, safer trade routes helped the settler population of New Mexico rise, but to just 19,000. By the mid-1790s, all the settlers, soldiers, and Christianized Indians in Texas combined totaled merely 3,000 even including the state of Nuevo Santander, which included the far southern part of what is today Texas, in addition to northeast Mexico, would have added only a little over 25,000 Hispanics. Even California could not entice settlers. In truth, it held all the wealth the Spanish had ever dreamed of, but that remained unknown. By 1848, 
its population was only 14,000 non-Indians. By contrast, by 1760, the British colonies along the Atlantic coast contained 1,275,000 settlers. British success at placing settlers in North America helped the fledgling United States, which became increasingly threatening to Spain in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. By 1820, the United States had a population of 9.6 million, compared with just 6.2 million in Spain's holdings. Less confined by regulation, the people of the United States also had a more productive economy. The Spanish settlers who did stay often made adjustments to their culture. Many began wearing leather moccasins like the Indians. They often found that the wheat, olives, and grapes that flourished back home did not do so well in America and substituted native plants such as beans, squash, chili peppers, and corn, often eaten as tortillas or tamales. In the southwest, they began to drink a lot of chocolate, and in the southeast, they started to drink a tea called cachina. Spain's downfall in America came from inside and from outside, but not from an Indian revolt or a French, British, Navajo, Comanche, Russian, or Apache invasion, the problems they had faced for most of the history of their North American colonies. Still in possession of France's old colony of Louisiana, Spain grappled with the United States to control the Southeast in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. It tried to subsidize the coming of Spanish colonists, but had too little to entice many people. It also tried to entice Americans into coming by offering free land while also diverting their loyalty towards Spain. It forbade public assemblies, and since Spain was a Catholic country, while the United States was mainly Protestant, banned Protestant services. And it tried to force Catholic instruction onto American children. Many Americans came under these terms, but many also streamed in illegally, planning to defy the regulations. The American population of Louisiana and Florida surged by the 1790s. You can't put doors on an open country, lamented the king's top advisor. In the 1780s, Spain also tried to pressure Americans living west of the Appalachian Mountains to transfer their loyalty to Spain by controlling the Mississippi River, the only way for farmers to reach distant markets. At first, Spain closed it outright, and then it imposed a high tax on goods shipped down the Mississippi. And it pursued good relations with the Creek, Alabama, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole Indians. In 1784, these tribes made treaties with Spain. They shared Spain's interest in keeping out the Americans, and they were vulnerable. In debt and unable to live without goods they could only get from Europeans, such as guns, ammunition, kettles, and alcohol, they were willing to make a deal. In the 1790s, in the midst of its struggle with the United States, Spain got swept up in the two decades of war stemming from the French Revolution and the rise of French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. First, it fought France and lost. Then it allied itself with France. In retaliation, Britain blockaded Spain from 1796 to 1808. The blockade made it difficult for Spain to supply its colonies with trade goods. Then, from 1808 to 1814, Spain fought to maintain its independence when Napoleon tried to put his brother on the throne. In addition to the damage from the blockade, the decades of war cut into the resources and attention Spain had to devote to its colonies. During the period of French occupation, Spanish leaders wrote a constitution 
and conflict over whether that document would apply to the restored monarchy distracted Spain for the half-decade after 1814. All this conflict made it even more difficult for Spain to hold on in the East. Allying itself with France in the mid-1790s raised the threat of war with Britain and made it in Spain's interest to improve relations with the United States, in 1795, it made the Treaty of San Lorenzo, also known as Pinckney's Treaty. It surrendered disputed territory in the southeast, including much of what is now Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky, and allowed the Americans to travel the Mississippi freely. Doing this cost Spain the friendship of several Indian tribes, whose land had now been ceded to the Americans. Unable to afford to keep Louisiana, in 1800, Spain gave it to France, which soon sold it to the United States. By 1810, Spain's southeastern territory consisted only of Florida, a bit of Louisiana, and the southern parts of Mississippi and Alabama. In the decade after 1810, Americans living in Spanish territory rebelled, and American civilians and soldiers invaded several times. Meanwhile, Spain's grip also slipped in the west. Spain's weakness and the shackles that trade regulations placed on business kept Spain from expanding into the Pacific Northwest. Spain tried to prevent trade outside the empire, allowed in Americans who had become Spanish citizens, and barred Americans who had not, but Americans flooded in illegally anyway. In New Mexico and the Southern Plains, they trapped beaver, traded, and captured wild horses, while their ships docked in California. While Spanish back in Europe tried to throw off Napoleonic domination, Indians, some Spanish soldiers, humble Spanish settlers, and invading American and French civilians took advantage of Spanish weakness by beginning to fight to throw off Spanish domination. The uprising against Spain's government caused Indians' gifts and trade to dry up, leading to a sharp uptick in raids. After Spain officially adopted its constitution in 1820, Many wealthy Mexicans joined the revolution for fear that the new constitution threatened their power. In 1821, Mexico won its independence. Spain's empire in North America was gone. Dealing with an expanding giant on its northern border would now be Mexico's problem.